And, uh, and then, you know, maybe it's a little while longer. And I think one of the things we discussed at the, at the men's retreat this last weekend is God's desire for you and I to seek him. I don't think we seek God like we seek other things. I mean, for example, the, while we were, while we were uh, in California, I borrowed a motorhome from somebody and I lost the keys. You guys ever lose the keys to something like that? Now, if you lose the keys to your trailer, you might not be able to lock the door. You might not be able to open it. But if you lose the keys to your motorhome, you're not going anywhere. So it was time for us to, to head out, you know, and I'm, I'm sure my, my lovely wife was not as interested in finding the keys as I was because that meant another hour holding the grandbaby. So she was, she was doing everything. But have you ever, when you're looking for something, notice the nutty places you look? Well, I mean, first you look all the normal places, right? On top of the counter. No, it's not there. You know, I thought I hung it on that nail. No, it's not there. Oh, maybe I left it in the, in the ignition. No, it's not there. Those are normal places, right? How long before you're in the freezer? <laughs> Digging through the freezer, you know, thinking, hmm, is it in the freezer? I took an oven apart. Because I thought, well, I've looked every place else. Maybe it's underneath the top of the oven. So lift the top of the oven up. By the way, it wasn't in there. And I think, I used to think, you know, maybe it's just because we're crazy. Maybe it's just because, you know, we don't really understand where things are. And so we we get nuttier as we go. And then my son said we, we had cut this big window, this opening between his kitchen and his living room while we were there. And as I'm getting ready to leave, my son goes, you know what? I think I know where they are. Where? In the wall. (laughs) Man, if the keys are in the wall, they can stay in the wall. I am not tearing that stuff apart to look. But now at night when I go to sleep, I wonder, did I put them in the wall? I mean, because that's where we store our keys, right? Don't we just leave them in the wall? That seems so odd to put them anywhere else just walk by that open wall and oh seems like a great plan we when we look for things we really look turn up side down the couches take the cushions off is that how we seek the lord when we seek the lord or we seek for word or direction from god do we seek him that way like for all we're worth because the lord wants us to seek him And he wants to be found. He's not going to play a game where he just stays outside of your reach. He wants to reveal himself to you. But I think sometimes the things we're going through and the struggles we face and and the things that are going on are, are an effort for God to say, seek me. Come on, just seek me. Just just. Forget about the sports center today. Forget about the news. Forget about whatever things you think were so important. And just set aside this day and seek me. Look for me. Go after me. You know, really just focus on him. And I think when we do those things, when we seek the Lord that way, I think he meets us in those places. I think he, he, he shows up when we need him and how we need him. And until that time, you know, when, when Peter is walking on the water and he starts to sink, the Lord didn't reach over and grab him until he said what? Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And then he's right there. And I, and I do believe there are those times when we just throw out a cry to the Lord and he's there. But I also think there are times God wants us to seek him. God wants us to seek him. He wants to be found by us. And chapter 17 at verse 22 it tells us now while they were still together in in galilee they're still hanging out in galilee they're getting ready to head toward jerusalem jesus said to his disciples the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and the third day he will be raised up and they were exceedingly sorrowful it's the second time Jesus said this, and he's going to say it more. And if we go through the Gospels, we, we see him saying this over and over and over again. Hey, I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to raise, I'm going to rise again on the third day. This is his prophetic statement about what's going on and what's going to happen in his life. Now, hasn't God given us those same kind of words? Hasn't the Lord told us in John chapter 14 that he's gone to prepare a place for us? And if he goes to prepare a place for us, he will what? Leave us here forever. 
No, he says, I will come again and bring you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And he wants us to live and to look forward to that. That's that, that's that thing that we want to look forward to. But in the meantime, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he told us, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. And he, he lays out this idea to the disciples and they couldn't see it. And I think sometimes it's the same way when we consider about the Lord's return. When we, you know, a lot of times we think that's, that's just that pie in the sky and the sweet by and by, you know, that's that, that's that outer limits hope somewhere out there that I can't touch. But that's not the way Paul lived. Paul lived his life looking for the return of Jesus Christ. He said there's a special crown for those who love his appearing who are looking for him, who are desiring to see him, who, who have that expectancy, who are seeking him, whose heart is toward the Lord. The disciples hear this, and they're sad for a moment, but they can't wrap their mind around their image of how God ought to work. And sometimes we struggle with the same thing, getting our minds wrapped around our image of how God ought to work. What, what God's plans for my life ought to be. How God ought to move. How God ought to, how to, ought to be working in my life. We can't get our minds wrapped around it. So we don't hear the promises that God does give us. He promises a peace that surpasses all understanding. So has anybody ever felt like they didn't understand what God was doing? Great. God's got a promise just for you. A peace that surpasses all understanding. That means the ability to rest in Christ even though it doesn't make sense. And he tells us how to achieve that. He tells us, he calls us, he, he beckons unto us to go before the Lord. To come before the Lord with prayer and supplication. What's he tell us? Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Seek the Lord. Be thankful for, for what he has given, what he's doing, how he's working in your life. Be thankful and seek him. And then he says, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and souls. But sometimes we just say the prayer, right? I mean, we're busy people. I understand. Things are happening. Things got to get done. We got to be moving. And so we hit the ground running and we throw up a, a casual prayer or a or a, or a token offering to the Lord, and then we go busy about our day. But then we're frustrated and we wonder, why am I not experiencing the peace of God? How come I don't understand? How come I can't grasp the promises? That's, the disciples are having the same problem. What's their focus? Their focus is, the kingdom of God is coming, and, and, and I'm going to get to rule next to Jesus, and all I can think about is, who's going to be the most important one? It's going to be Peter. Because I don't think it should be Peter. Peter's a knucklehead and he says dumb things all the time. I think it should be me, Bartholomew. And so their thoughts are wrapped up on those kind of things. And when the Lord speaks to them, they miss it. They miss it. But God's got a way of bringing our attention back around to them. So look what happens. In verse 24 it says, So when they came to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? There's a couple of times Jesus gets asked a question about taxation. Let's just get it straight. Is, is there anybody who likes being taxed? I'm not thrilled about it, but, you know, it is what it is. The, the greatest answer Jesus ever gave is he said, whose inscription's on that coin? Do you remember? And they said, the inscription on that coin is Caesar. That's Caesar's inscription. So Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. But what else did he say? Render unto the Lord the things that are the Lord's. That coin is in the image of Caesar, but who are you created in the image of? God. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, these guys come to Peter, and they're giving Peter a hard time. Hey, has your, has your master paid the temple tax? The temple tax was a patriotic tax, you know, that the Jews gave to one another. It was a half-shekel tax, the scripture talks about earlier. It was never intended to last forever, but it kind of did. Have you ever heard of a tax like that? <laughs> Seems kind of familiar, doesn't it? A tax that wasn't supposed to be forever, but it kind of ended up that way. Watch out when you vote for taxes and stuff, huh? They never go away. So Jesus said, 
or Peter responds to him. He says, yes, yes, he'll pay the tax. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipating him said, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take custom or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Who are the king's tax? Now, the reality is the king taxes all the strangers. The prince doesn't pay. The queen doesn't pay. The family doesn't pay. So he says, to whom? He says, well, Peter answers from strangers. And so Jesus said, then the sons are free. Man, we're free. We're free. Isn't that great? Jesus said we're free. And then he paid his tax. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Jesus said, the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take out the fish that comes up first. When you open its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take it that you may give it to them for me and you. We see God's supernatural provision, but we also see something else. It's God's talking about taxes. And in case you're thinking, well, the people when they were receiving taxes back then weren't corrupt. Uh, Yes, they were. They were horrendously corrupt. The taxes were being wasted right and left. It was just a way to lie in other people's pockets. He could have found a hundred excuses why. And Jesus said, you're free because I am the king and you are my sons and the sons are free. But, so we don't offend. And that word offend is scandalizo. It means to, to trip. So we don't cause someone to stumble. We'll pay it. And then he tells Peter, that I, I love when God likes to have fun. He's having fun here. Peter, you want to pay that tax? This is what you're, what you're, you're going to go fishing. That's how you're going to pay the tax. Go fishing. Most people, most commentators, you read this up, they don't believe it. I believe it. He said it. Go catch a fish. And not only did he say go catch, he said go catch a fish. And in the fish's mouth, you're going to find the, the word in the Greek is a stator. A stator was two didrachmai. The, the tax was a single didrachmai. And so the, the tax for both of them would have been uh, two didrachmai, which is actually four coins, which make up a single coin called the stator. One stator equals four didrachmai. Now, why is that important? Well, it's not really important, but the point is this. The Jewish people hated to let the tax collectors hear a lot of coins hit the bag. So they would get two Jewish men together and pay with a stator. So they just dropped one coin in instead of four coins. So Jesus, a little bit of a sense of humor and having a little bit of fun, could have done anything. Could have reached into his pocket and said, here you go, brother. Here's a stator. Go Pay the tax. What do you do? Go catch a fish. Pull the coin out of the fish's mouth and go pay the tax. Because Peter was struggling with this idea. He's struggling with a lot of things. He's struggling with, why do I got to pay this tax? A stupid tax. I don't want to pay the tax. I don't want to do it. But then he said, here's the Lord say, you're free. But then the Lord says, no, go ahead and pay the tax. And Peter's all frustrated. And while he's in that place of frustration, the Lord says, go fishing. Peter, go chill out. Catch a fish. Take the coin out of its mouth. To me, this is what Jesus is saying. Peter, brother, stop sweating the small stuff. Rule number one. Rule number two, it's all small stuff. God and you equals a majority. I don't care what you're facing. God plus you equals a majority. God covers what Peter needs. Peter goes and pays his taxes. But it's interesting that Jesus said it was more important to him not to cause someone to stumble than for him to exercise his freedom. That's going to be important as we take a look at chapter 18 because chapter 18 begins like this. And at that time, Peter pays. At that time, the disciples come to Jesus and say, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Almost every time Jesus talks about his death, burial, and resurrection, the disciples are going to ask this question. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. They're going to, they're going to kill him, and in the third day he'll rise again. Lord, which one of us is the greatest? What? Are you listening to the words that are coming out of my mouth? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Man, they're, they're missing it. They're not quite catching it. They're not quite... Getting along. So the disciples come to Jesus and say, 
Which of us is the greatest? Now, surely it's going to stop, though, right? I mean, the, the night of his betrayal, they're not going to ask that question, are they? Yeah, actually, the night he is arrested, they will ask the same question. Why? Because they're concerned with which one of them is going to have the place of honor in his kingdom. Because all they can see is he's going to be king. And we want to know who's going to be on the right and the left. How are we going to work within your kingdom? What are the things that we're going to do? They really, really struggled with this idea. Because God's promise says that we're going to rule and reign with the Messiah. And that's all they could see. We're going to rule and reign with the Messiah. And so how's that going to be? How's that all going to work out? We want it right now. Can I have that right now? Lord, by today, tomorrow will be okay. We want the, the, the directions on how the hierarchy of your rulership is going to work. They had a promise. But they didn't have patience for that promise. And it caused them to ask this question over and over and over again. Lord, who's the greatest? Their focus is on themselves and the fulfillment of that promise and receiving the fulfillment of that promise. Man, we, we want to see that. We want to understand that. They have within them this attitude, this, this cry in their soul that makes them want to excel. Surely we understand that, right? Isn't that part of the American dream? You work hard, you, you slave, you put your heart and soul into something, and you should achieve great things. But guys, that's, that's not part of God's plan. That's American plan. How's that working out for you so far? God's plan is that if you want to be great, be the least. If you want to be super, be the servant of all. In fact, the scripture calls out to us in Philippians chapter 2, it says uh, in verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each esteem others. Their focus was on themselves. Their focus is these promises that they read in the Old Testament, and and they want to see those promises fulfilled today. And we're the same way. Well, it's different promises. We're not looking for the kingdom, but we're looking for those promises that that God laid out for us. That we would have that life and that we would have that life more abundantly. That we would experience the things that God's word has laid on our hearts. And we, we grab a hold of those things and we say, Lord, why isn't my life like this? And ultimately, that's what they're saying. Lord, why isn't my life like this? Why am I not experiencing all of these things who's going to be the greatest where am i going to fit in your plan but that's all they could see that's all they could see there's a call a desire a a a plan a thing within us that wants to excel whatever we do that's okay but if we're the focus then he's not and if he's the focus then that's what we're looking for, not all the other stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added. Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you even ask. He knows the promises that he's made. He knows how to fulfill those promises in your life and draw you close to them. And and so sometimes we focus on the things that we don't have rather than focusing on that which we do. The Lord Jesus Christ, a part of our life. He was a part of their life, but they... They couldn't focus in on him. All they could see was what they didn't have. Who's the greatest? Who's the most important? Jeremiah in Jeremiah 45, 5 said this. And do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Jeremiah the prophet. Are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. There's a young man. His name's Spurgeon. Maybe you heard of him. Now he's an old dead guy that people like to quote. But once upon a time... He was the young, hip, on-the-ball preacher. and People were coming from everywhere to hear this guy. Everybody wanted to hear what Spurgeon had to say. And Spurgeon, in his study through Jeremiah, came to this verse. You seek great things for yourself, seek them not. Forget about it. Forget about it. Forget about that selfish ambition that wants to raise our name in lights. And rather, seek him. Seek the Lord. 
Not seeking my station, not seeking my riches, not seeking my comfort, not seeking that everything in my life is going to be okay. Seek the Lord. And really seek Him like a pair of lost keys. I mean, go after Him. Turn over the couch. Look in the freezer. I don't know where you're going to find Him, but I know that you will find Him. You will find Him. He will be there. He will meet you in that place. Oh, who's the greatest? Who is the greatest? In Romans 12, 10, it says, Be kindly affectionate to one another. With brotherly love and in honor, give preference to one another. With honor, give preference to one another. Think about somebody else. Not just yourself. I've heard people say it all the time. You know, we talk about a variety of things. Oh, I got a... Uh, we got a, a home Bible study going on, and, and people will say, oh, wow, you know, that's pretty cool. I'd like to go to it. But someone else might say, you know, I don't really need it. Everything's good in my life. Well, super. I'm glad everything's good in your life. There's a whole bunch of people at that home Bible study, and everything's not good for them. So why don't you go help? Where do you get the idea that I'm okay, so hang everybody else? Where do we get the idea that that's God's way? I'm doing good. I'm comfortable. I'm happy. Man, if, if there's a way for us to plug in and be a part of helping someone else, don't you think we ought to do it? Don't you think we ought to pick up the rope and, and put our shoulder into it and start the pull as well? When I was doing youth ministry many moons ago when I was a young man, and we were... Uh, working, we always had some kids that really got it, man. They caught fire and they were just moving with the Lord and they're doing all these great things. But if, if it, always they would come to me and they say, you know, Jackie, uh, high school's okay, but these guys here, they just don't take it seriously. So we're bailing. We're going to go to the, to the college ministry or we're going to go to the big church or we're going to go here or there. And I would always say the same thing. You know, if you guys got it and you're getting it, I could sure use your help coming alongside and helping me get that message across to the other kids. Yeah, but it just doesn't fit in my business right now. I'm so frustrated. I'm frustrated because, you know, they don't want to stand up and sing or they don't, they, they are goofing around while we're worshiping or they're, they're always, you know what, so I can't deal with it, and it's a problem for me, and so I'm going to go someplace else. And you're saying the word for yourself a little too much. Let each esteem others greater than themselves, looking for an opportunity to pour into the life of someone else. Seek the Lord. Find Him. Go after him for all your worth. Jesus, to explain to them, what is it? What, who, who's the greatest? Jesus is going to tell them. He says in verse 2, Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. Now it's interesting, a lot of people want to try to figure out how old this little child was. The, the word in the Greek doesn't tell us how old. Anywhere from infant to five years old is the same word, pation. It's, a, it's the same idea. Someone... Someone uh, that could be held. In the Gospel of Luke, when we read the Gospel of Luke, we see the same thing. This, this child being able to, to be held by the Lord. He sets him in the midst and he held him. Jesus called this little child, a young one to him, and he put him in the middle of them. And he said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted. That word converted is the same for the word repent. Unless you change your direction. Disciples are heading off of who's the greatest and focused on self and, and meeting their own personal needs and dealing with their own personal frustrations. He said, unless you are converted, unless you repent, unless you change your ways and become as little children, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I was pretty sure that, you know, the way to enter into the kingdom of heaven is to come before the Lord and and you know, with a, a couple of brothers, maybe pray a prayer, profess the Lord Jesus Christ, ask him into your heart and, and things would be good. But here he says, unless you become his little children, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And we go through the book of Matthew. There's a lot of times he's talking about, well, here's how you're going to see the kingdom of heaven. Here's how you're going to see it began in the beginning of Matthew around Matthew chapter four. John the Baptist is on the scene. He's preaching. What's, what was his message? 
Repentance, right? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. In, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus took up that mantle and began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is here. Be in repentance. In, in Matthew chapter 9, uh, the Lord laid out for us in verse 13. He said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? Repentance. Change. Change your direction. Well, Matthew 5.20, he said, unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, now we got to repent and we got this attitude of righteousness. Where's our righteousness? What's our righteousness about? Matthew 6.33, we already talked about, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. So he talks about righteousness and repentance leading us to the kingdom of God. Then Matthew 7, 21, this is a, a verse that may cause us a little angst at night. It says, not all who say unto me, Lord, Lord, will see the kingdom of God, but he who does the will of my Father. Not all who say, but all who do. So he tells us it's not all about what we say. It's not all about our profession. It's, it talks about repentance, and he talks about righteousness, he talks about obedience. And then, here in verse 4, he talks about humility. In fact, Jesus goes on and he he says in verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Wow. So many things. How, How do we enter into the kingdom of heaven? Oh, it's all wrapped up in what Jesus just said. Unless you become like this little child. You know, that little child is... Totally dependent on his parents to take care of him. No job, no bills. Weren't those the good old days? <laughs> totally dependent upon the Lord. Totally helpless. He said, unless you repent, change your direction and become like this child. Totally helpless. Totally dependent. That's what it is to enter into the kingdom of God. I mean, is my righteousness ever going to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? Well, the scripture tells us my righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees because I don't have any. And I come to the Lord and I say, I can't do this myself. I can't make this righteousness. I am helpless and I am dependent upon you. And the Lord says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he pours out upon us his righteousness imputed to our account. So that's how we meet the requirement of the righteousness. Because we came to him helpless and dependent. Lord, help me. And he gave us righteousness. Well, how do we meet this requirement for obedience? The same way. We come to the Lord helpless and dependent upon him. I can't obey. I'm struggling. I, I struggle. Paul even said in Romans chapter 7, The things I ought to do, I don't do. The things I shouldn't, I do. I am a wretched man of death. This, this, this will inside of me to go against the Lord. But nevertheless, it is the grace of God poured out in our lives that gives us, for the first time ever, the power to obey. Apart from His grace, there, there, the law doesn't give me any power. All the law tells me is what I've done wrong. It can't tell me how to do it right. Just says you did it wrong. Oops, you did it wrong again. Hey, well, just in case you're wondering, you did it wrong again. It can condemn, but the power of grace, when I come before the Lord like that little child, and I, I don't have anything that I can do for myself, all I can do like that little child is raise my hands to my Heavenly Father, and what's He do? He meets me, He scoops me up, he, he pours His righteousness upon me. He gives me grace so that I can live a life of obedience. And when I recognize that that's what's going on, I better be a humble person because I didn't do anything. All I did is trust in Him. And He did it all. He met me in all those places. He gave me righteousness. He gives me grace that I might obey. He is the one who has done it all. So like that child, I want to be humble. You know what that child's not wondering? Who's the greatest? The Papa. Yeah, the Papa. 
The Lord is the greatest. The Lord is the greatest. Now the child's not worried about it. You know, they don't very often get together and, and argue. When they get older, they will. But let me tell you, you put a, a bunch of a little ones, little babies crawling around on the floor, and none of them are looking around thinking, you know what, she's more popular than me, and I don't like her very much. And, uh, you know, I got huggies, and she's got pampers, and, you know, I wish my parents would get it together and get me the right kind of clothes. Man, they're not doing that. That's why Jesus grabbed a little child. The gospel of Luke tells us it was an infant. The, the, the people were bringing the little children, remember this verse, bringing the little children to Jesus that he might bless them. Well, the word is the word infant. They're bringing their little babies. In the book of, of Numbers, it, it lays out for us that on the, in the first month, on the 31st day of a child's existence, they would bring that baby to the priest that the rabbis there in the temple would lay hands on that baby and bless the child. You remember in Luke chapter 2, we read the very same thing happening with Jesus. His parents brought him to the temple and they ran into this guy, Simeon. Remember, Simeon lays his hands on the baby and prophesies over him and tells Mary a sword's going to pierce her very soul and, and that he's the one for the rising up and the, and the pulling down of Israel. He, he declares him to be the Messiah. And that takes place. Well, the people would do the same thing for Jesus. He's a rabbi, man. He's healing all these people. He's a great man. So people would bring their little ones. So he never had a hard time finding a little one. He'd look around, there's a little baby. He grabs that little baby, calls the little one to himself. Maybe it's a little toddler just walking. He scoops up that little baby, sets him in the middle and says, unless you become like this little child. And stop thinking about yourself. And only being focused on what you got. And live a life of dependence upon God, just like this child lives a life of dependence upon his parents. You won't see the kingdom of, of heaven. The disciples are struggling with it all along. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? The Lord says, you want to know who's the greatest? Be as humble as this little child. Be as humble as this, this little. You know, children had no value then, right? In fact, you had to reach a certain age where your parents would actually adopt you and then you would become uh, inheritable. Until that time, say you were 13, 12, 13 and you had a bad attitude and your parents hadn't, you hadn't reached the age where they adopted you yet, they could just make you a servant and start again. Some parents are thinking, that sounds like a pretty good idea right now. <laughs> I know, I know, I've been there. I've looked at my children and when they reached a certain age and I've wondered... I'm not sure how the demon got in there, and I'm not sure how to get that demon out. Come out of him. I thought about coming to the church and opening up one of the faucets, because if you take water from a church, it's holy water, and you go home and squirt it on your kids, and that'd change everything, wouldn't it? Nah. Nah, they're good. They're good. They just follow in our footsteps sometimes a little closer than we'd like. They bear our image a little too much sometimes. Jesus said, unless you become as one of these, unless you become humble like this little child, you won't be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, whoever receives a little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever welcomes this little child. Jesus said, man, these little children are important. Do you know to him, the ministry to the little ones is the most important part? In fact... D.L. Moody used to say, people would ask him, how was church tonight? He says, oh, two and a half people got saved. And so they go to D.L. Moody and they say, oh, two and a half, two adults and one child. He said, no, two children and one adult. The adult's life's half over. He only counts as half a soul. <laughs> the children got their whole life ahead of them. And to the Lord, ministry to the children was important was important. It was not that we would give our cast-offs or what little time we have left, that we would give them that, but it would be the attitude, ah, I want to give to them the best. Whoever receives a little one, welcomes this little one in my name, he welcomes me. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 25, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brother, it's the same idea. To the least of these, to the little ones, you receive me. 
to the ones that, that maybe at that time didn't have the kind of value that we place upon them today. But then in verse 6, he goes on, he gets even more important. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... Your Bible may say, whoever causes this little one who believes in me to sin. That's the idea that causes the sin. But it's the same word, scandalizo, to scandalize, to trip. Remember when Jesus said, well, just so we don't cause anyone to trip, we'll pay the tax. We don't have to pay the tax, but just because we don't want someone to stumble. Jesus said, if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for you to put a millstone around your neck and be cast into the depths of the sea. I don't care how good you swim. This is not good. You're not treading water with a millstone around your neck. The closest example we would have today is cement shoes and the mafia. I'm going to put a millstone around your, your neck. Well, he didn't say I will. He said it would be better. If you had a millstone around your neck and were cast into the sea, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. And the idea here is not just while he's talking about little children in the, in the ministry to little kids and meeting the ministry to kids and giving our lives for them. He's also talking to those who are little children in the Lord. He used the same phrase. You cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. By your freedom, by your liberty, that you would cause someone else to trip, someone else to fall. The Lord says, it's better for you to drown yourself in the ocean than to do that. Don't, by your freedom, cause your brother to fall. And this is what he's laying out for them. You want to know who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? The greatest one is the one who's not thinking about himself, but rather is looking at what he can get out of the way how he can remove stumbling blocks from the path of his brother. Looking for ways to open up the path that they might be able to walk. Whoever causes one of these little ones. He says in verse 7, Woe to the world because of the offenses. Hey, in the world you're going to have trouble. For offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom they come. He says, hey, there's going to be evil in the world. Jesus is saying, there's evil out here. I know that, but woe to the man who brings it. Woe to the man who trips that little one. Woe to the one who strips them of their faith. Woe to the one who, who takes it, doesn't take the opportunity to pour in, to be a part. What are we going to say on that day? We stand before God and, and the Lord asks us to give account for the time that we had. Well, what did you do with that time? Well, you know, I, I worked a lot, man, 95 hours a week, and I, I painted a lot of roadways, and I provided for my family and made sure the rent was paid and, and everything. And you know what? God doesn't really care about that as much as he cares about. What did you teach your children? Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And you will teach these precepts to your children. You will bind them on your forehead and put them on the back of your hands. You will put them on the doorposts of your house and at the gates of your property. That your life and who you are and what you're about will be founded upon your relationship with the Lord. Is that what we're doing? Are we seeking Him first? Are we going after the Lord with everything that we have? Are we seeking Him he says then, if something is in your way from doing that, get rid of it. Well, this is how God says it. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Better for you to enter into life maimed or lame rather than having two hands or feet and being cast into everlasting fire. What is in your life that is holding you back from being everything that God wants you to be? It doesn't have to be a sin. He says, whatever it is that causes you to sin. That word for sin is the same word, scandalizo. What trips you up? What trips you up? You know, I'd be doing a lot of other things with the Lord, but, oh, you know, I just have this thing. Uh, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, something simple like movies we watch or TV that we spend too much time in front of or, or video games that we play or whatever. It could be a bazillion things. What is the thing that trips me up? He says, get rid of it. 
Cast it out. Toss it to the side. Better that you go into the rest of your life without it. But if your life is your focus, you won't do it. Because you'll say, hey, it's not a bad thing. And I'm free. I'm free to do this. And so you leave that thing in your life that trips you up and you'll be constantly asking yourself the question, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? How come, I, how come I'm not reaching the pinnacle that I want to be with the Lord? What am I holding on to with my hand when God says, get rid of it. Just cut it off. He's not telling you to chop off your hand. If your left hand steals and you chop it off, can you steal with your right hand? Last I checked. And if I don't have a left hand, chances are I will. I know some people, you cut off both their hands, they'll steal with their mouth. They'll steal any way they can because the stealing's inside of them. He says, cut out that which is inside of you. Get rid of it. Cast it aside. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better that you enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into Gehenna. One of the names that Jesus used for hell. That thing that causes us to trip, to stumble, to, to, to not quite get what God wants us to get. And we're tripping over it, but we won't remove it because we're so focused on self and the, our rights to have it that we won't get rid of it. But the Lord says, seek me first. And if there's anything in the way of you seeking him first, get rid of it, whatever it is. I, maybe it's not bad. I'm not saying it's bad. Maybe it's, maybe it's a good thing. But it's in the way of you seeking the Lord. Remove it. Cast it out. Get it out of the way. Get it out of the way so that you're not tripping. So that you're not teaching your children to trip. So that people who are watching aren't learning to trip because of of watching you deal with this like it's okay. Because you know what? If we demand our rights and we do things that someone else stumbles with, they're going to think it's okay for them to do. So I'm supposed to think more about them. More about what's loving for them. More about how that's going to help them. More about what's going to, going to encourage them. Romans chapter 14 says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. Not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in the path of our brother. Let's just not judge anybody, not worry about this. Just not put stumbling blocks in front of each other. Get rid of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, Paul writes, But food does not commend us to God, neither if we eat are we better, or if we don't eat are we worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty, this freedom of yours, become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who has knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened that he can eat those things offered to idols as well? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, Paul said, I will never eat meat again. Now he's free to eat all the meat he wants. But he said, listen, if it caused my brother to stumble, I will lay it down. Give it up. Turn it over. I will not just stay focused on myself, focused on being the greatest. I want to be like that little child, helpless before God, dependent upon God, not demanding my rights, but laying my rights aside and allowing God to do a perfect work in my life. Because that's what God wants to do, man. God wants to move. He wants to work. So he says in verse 10, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I like that. Hey, don't sweat it. The angels of the little ones always are in the presence of Almighty God. They always see his face. He gives his angels charge over thee. This is the verse from which we get the concept of guardian angels, ministering spirits. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 tells us. Here they are. They're here watching over the kids. For the Son of Man has come. For what purpose? That he might save that which is lost. 
So, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to find the one that is straying? Not if he's worried about being the greatest. If he's worried about being the greatest, he'll stay with the ninety-nine. He will not leave the crowds to go to the one. Most of the time, people who are ministering are all worried about how many people they're ministering to. How many people? If there's enough people, then it's worth it, right? The Lord said, if I had a hundred sheep and one of them's missing, I'll leave the 99 and go minister to the one. To the one. The attitude that says, I'll go to one. Go spend time. I'll go give of myself to the one. And you're never going to get famous that way. The world's not ever going to put your name up in lights. You're never going to get called like Billy Graham. Jesus said, if one is gone, if one strays, then he will find it. And if he finds it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over the sheep that, that went astray than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Even for one. What's, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, listen... You guys are wondering about what's greatest and you're worried about a lot of things and you're getting focused on all the wrong things. You need to seek the Lord. Seek Him. Look for Him. Just like He looks for you when you were the one sheep. And if you're here today and you're wondering, listen, if you were the only one on earth and everybody else didn't believe, but there was you who would receive, He would have come and died for you alone. For the one. He cares about us individually. Each and every one of us. The Father's desire is that not one of these little ones would perish. That's His will, by the way. His will is that not one would perish. But we have choice, huh? We have choice. There are those who perished. Last I checked, Judas didn't fare too well, the one who betrayed the Lord. There are ones that perish for whom God said, I, my will is that not one would perish, but that all would come to everlasting life. He gives that call to us to come unto him like a little child. That's what he wants, that we would come to him that way, with our hearts to him, totally helpless, totally dependent on him. If you're here today and you're struggling with something, you're dealing with things and you're thinking, man, I've been praying and God hasn't met my prayers or I'm seeking the Lord and I'm not really getting the answer from the Lord. Then listen, go back to the beginning. Go back to the start. Be helpless and dependent upon the Lord and seek him like he sought you. Put the time, put the effort, not just flippantly, but with everything that you have, go after him. I promise you, you will find, and he will answer, and he will show himself, almighty God, mighty to save. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for this time that we can study your word, Lord Jesus, that we can, that we can just come before you, Father, and seek your guidance and leading, Lord Jesus. We pray, God, as we... Just consider this concept as he set this little child in the midst of them. God, that's how I want to come before you. I want to be before you as a little child. I want to be there saying, I am not going to do this myself, and I can't solve it myself, and I'm not going to depend on me. I'm not going to depend on my job. I'm not going to depend on the world to bail me out. I need to depend on you. I'm helpless and dependent upon you. And that we would come before you with an attitude that says, man, I need to seek you. I need to come before you. Man, we, I, I don't think we really understand what it is, Lord, to, to pray with groanings that cannot be uttered. Because we're, we're so moved that we, we can't even take a step. We can't move to the right or the left until we have an answer. And so we seek you. So we come before you with that earnestness, desiring that, God, your spirit would move. God, I pray that we would come to you that way. I pray, Lord, that we would receive from you as we seek. As we seek you first. 
We seek you first in our day. We seek you first for your answer. That we seek you first for all those things, Lord God, that, that we're so concerned about. That we would go after you. That we go after you just like we go after the solution of the problem when we forget you. That when we say something like, I got to do something, that the choice would be that I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to go after him. I'm going to pour through his word. I'm going I'm to just, just, I want that desire. I want that, that place. I want that attitude that says, I don't want to be the greatest. I don't care how many. One. Lord, I want to look for opportunity to pour into the lives of those little ones that you used as an example. Look for the opportunity to, to pour into the life of a child. But to pour into them faith and hope and love. To pour into the things, into their life, the things of God. Lord, that's, that's how we need to come to you. That's how we need to seek you. That's how you will be found by us. That's how we will understand your will and understand where to go. But we have to go after you. I pray that be our heart. Lord, I'm going to go after you. I'm going to go after you and receive what you have so that I may move forward, God, into to your perfect plan for my life. Father God, we just come before you this morning. I know there are people here this morning that are hurting and going through difficulty, Lord. And I just pray they find themselves in your arms, helpless and dependent. Not concerned about it. I pray that they would know, just as the Gospel of Luke declares to to the disciples who often wanted to know, well, when's all this stuff going to happen? Lord, you said, listen, it's going to happen. But until it does, seek me. God, I pray that you would just move in our lives in a mighty way and we would draw close in Jesus' name. Amen.